Fashion freaking matters. It matters to the economy, to society, and to each of us personally. Faster than anything else, what we wear tells the story of who we are or who we want to be. Fashion is the most immediate and intimate form of self-expression. Now, that is actually from Francis Corner's Why Fashion Matters, albeit slightly ad-libbed by myself. But this quote in a nutshell is why I love fashion. My name is Annalise Days and welcome to Oh My Days, What Are We Wearing? The eight-part series that is all about the F word. I talk about my 20 plus years working in the fashion industry, including my two-time brush with a certain reality show. I'll be your own personal hype girl, giving you practical advice on how to make it in fashion. Whether your runway is the kitchen, the office, or your local high street, I dish out my own dose of look good, feel good philosophy while discussing topics and dynamics that are super important to the fashion industry. So it's episode five of Oh My Days, What Are We Wearing? Now, throughout this series, I've talked about my journey in the fashion industry and given some tips on how to become a model. But then I realized I should really talk about my journey into presenting. Now, you might think that presenting isn't necessarily linked to fashion, but I've managed to carve my way into a TV presenting career while talking about selling and reviewing all things fashion. And maybe you're just somebody who's looking to get into TV. My story might be able to inspire you or help you understand the different avenues into the field. So here we go. Now, I've always been a chatterbox, but I knew I wanted to become a presenter when I was about 16 years old. In sixth form, I decided on media studies as one of my course options, and the subject really resonated with me. Around the same time, I was also a dancer in a company called Impact Dance, and the opportunity came about for me to train to teach dance classes. I fell in love. Me in front of the studio, all eyes on me as I gave instructions and directions. It felt like a performance, a show, my own show. I continued to teach dance, but education was important to me and my parents. So when it came to choosing a university, I decided to pick one that was known for its comprehensive media studies course, and that was the University of Westminster. They had a degree that was specifically titled Media Studies TV Broadcasting, and I knew it was the course for me. I felt it was important to understand how TV broadcasting and production worked so I could equip myself with the skills that not only could help me with my TV presenting aspirations, but could also be a fallback in case I couldn't make my on-screen dreams a reality. I would at least be able to work in the field of TV. Now, of course, you don't need to go to university to become a presenter, but the experience of university life is something that I really wanted to do. And it totally helped that the University of Westminster had a study abroad program in the second year. And honestly, it had to be this university. Media studies courses were not very well developed and they didn't have the best reputation of leading on to successful careers. And the University of Westminster was at the top for this specific degree. I was so set on Westminster that when I didn't get in, I chose to take a gap year and apply the following year which actually meant I had to pay top-up fees, but this didn't phase me at all. And of course, I eventually got in. I found the degree really interesting. It was well-rounded with 50% theory and 50% practical, where we got to produce our own shows. 
taking on different roles within TV production, and of course, when a role for a presenter came up, I dived right in. I studied abroad in Miami in my second year, which was an experience in itself. And it was in my third year where I got the opportunity on Britain's Next Top Model. Since I was taking time away from uni in order to be on the show, it was imperative that I stayed on course to hand in my dissertation, which, as I mentioned in earlier episodes of this podcast, I wrote it about reality TV. And of course, being on a show gave me a great insight into this. I was still teaching dance and teaching trampolining while at university. For those of you who don't know, I was a gymnast for 10 years when growing up, so teaching trampoline lined up nicely for me. I also started hosting dance events, furthering my love for being in front of an audience, and I graduated with a 2-1 in 2009. My plan was to use Britain's Next Top Model as a platform to launch my presenting career, hopefully focusing on fashion and beauty which I did to some degree by volunteering to host any fashion event I could find. But with so little presenting opportunities out there, I didn't want to narrow myself into a box, so I was willing to host any type of event that would have me. From food fairs to wedding shows to music events and talent shows. I then started venturing into radio and volunteered at what was then called Bang Radio, now The Beat, a community radio station. I was offered The Breakfast Show, which I understood was a big deal, but I wasn't really thrilled about having to wake up stupid early Monday through Thursday. For guess what? No money, just expenses. But I did it. Something told me that this would be a learning experience, almost like an investment into my presenting career, which I paid for in sleep. I had what I call a hustle mentality, saying yes to absolutely everything. I continued to teach dance and trampoline while attempting to secure modelling jobs and, of course, presenting live events where I could for little or no money. Then, in 2011, it was time for America's Next Top Model to knock at my door and I answered. People seem to have this idea that when you do a show like this, you are catapulted into stardom. And while I did squeeze it dry... I mean, I flew myself to America when the show was airing and took every single interview opportunity that came my way. It didn't do that for me. I still had to keep that hustle mentality. After Top Model, a presenting agent did reach out and sign me, which I was so thankful for because trust me, I tried to get an agent with absolutely no luck. But even with an agent, I still needed that hustle mentality. The truth of it is, is that I brought most of the work I got to my agent to have them negotiate fees and contracts, etc. Here's a story how initiative and persistence worked for me. Clove Show Live. It was a huge exhibition of fashion, beauty, shopping and catwalk shows that took place every year at the NEC Birmingham. And I had always wanted to work there. I decided that I was going to get a press pass and do my own interviews. A small PR company I was working with at the time, who clearly saw and felt my struggle, had contacts with a camera crew near Birmingham and hooked me up. We spent three days in Birmingham, paid for by ourselves. And when I hit that exhibition floor, the presenter in me turned on. I interviewed visitors, exhibitors, and every time a celebrity left a stage, I ran over with authority. I've got the feeling that some of them thought that I was there in an official capacity with Clo Show Live. But anywho, 
I spoke with Amy Charles, Joey Essex, Charlie Speed, Vivi Brown, Karen Franklin and so many more. Once I came back home, I popped all the interviews on YouTube and a couple of weeks later, Clove Show Live contacted me directly to ask if they could use my videos on their website. Like what? That started an ongoing relationship where I hosted the Clove Show Live YouTube channel and I was sent to host the live event, well paid, to cover it and interview celebrities and host various stages for the next five years running. This was like gold dust to me. It gave me plenty of footage for my showreel and I finally felt like I was in a space that suited me so well. As you can see from my story, live events was really how I got my experience. I always say that as a presenter, there's three avenues to take. TV presenting, my absolute dream. Radio, something that I hadn't seen materialise anything tangible for me yet. And live events, which was like my bread and butter as I dragged my way into the presenting industry. In 2015, I was approached about doing a fashion documentary for a local TV channel based up north. And yet again... The opportunity wasn't paid and I even had to cover my own expenses. It was a six-part series filmed during the summer, but since my hustle mentality was still very much intact, I decided to do it. I told myself that you never know where it might go, who you might meet, and if all else fails, you've got more footage for your showreel. I did it and nothing really came of that show. But while I was filming, I did get an interesting email from a producer at Heart Radio. The email said that they'd seen some of my work online and wanted to invite me in for a radio demo. Like who, me? I could feel it in my bones that this was a turning point. Over the course of a month or so, I went in for chats and recorded various demos. I was so overwhelmed just by being in the building itself. Owned by Global, a huge headquarters in Leicester Square, which houses some of the biggest radio stations in the UK. Eventually, and to my astonishment, I was offered my own nationwide radio show, hosting the Club Classics every Friday and Saturday night after Mark Wright. This was without a doubt the biggest opportunity I'd ever been given. I had major imposter syndrome walking around that building. I learned how to drive the desk and present in Hart's preferred style. It was a commitment though. I sacrificed every single Friday and Saturday night, missing birthdays, weddings, get-togethers and occasions for two and a half years. Radio is a whole other beast, especially commercial radio. The links, the bits where you talk in between the music, are only about 10 to 30 seconds long, which doesn't give you much time to get your personality across. Throughout my time at Ha, while always hosting the club classics, my slot times did change. Starting off with the late nights, 10pm to 2am, then moving to a more acceptable time of 7pm to 10pm. And I really developed as a radio presenter. During this time, I finally got into the world of voiceovers. Now, I had tried getting a voiceover agent, but constantly got rejections, or even worse, no response at all. It was only when agents knew I was on heart did I get responses, and I ended up signing with one of the biggest voiceover agents in the country, Wise Buddha, which is now called One Take Voices. And honestly, I love doing voiceovers. My time at heart ended abruptly, and quite frankly, brutally. I'm going to take a deep breath, because I've never spoken publicly about this. But without going into too much detail, let me just say that... Basically, I was fired without being told. In fact, I was told, 
But I was told via a group email to the whole company. That is every single radio station that Global owns. Despite the fact that I sat down face to face with bosses days before. I was devastated. Now I know how to take a blow, especially growing up within the modelling industry. But this one knocked me flat. My whole presenting identity was very much wrapped up in heart. So when it was taken away from me, I felt lost. But as they say, every experience is a learning lesson. And this one taught me not to rely on a company or brand for success or validation. Of course, take those branded opportunities, but be sure to build yourself, your own brand and your social media at the same time. You want to find your community, your audience and share what it is you do and who you're about with them. And that's what I did. That's when I decided to narrow it down and focus on fashion. This is how my outfit check videos were born. Sharing style tips, fashion hacks and inspiration really gave me a sense of purpose and of course so much joy. And before I knew it, that was what people knew me for. I told my agent my plans, and although she understood my reasoning, she decided that she wouldn't be able to represent me anymore, because, in her words, there's other bigger celebrity stylists out there. And honestly, I couldn't argue with her. I kept chugging along, putting out my fashion content, which definitely consumed me, and got consumed, because during the pandemic, we obviously were all on our phones. Then came the chance to audition as a style expert for QVC. Funny enough, the opportunity came through one of my model agents. I did two shows as a guest presenter before being told that they wanted to audition me for a main presenter role. Like, wait, you want me to shop, talk and get paid? Sign me up. There was a long audition process and in the end, they couldn't decide between me and another presenter and they ended up offering us both the job. What made this even sweeter is that both of us are black women and for a platform like QVC that, let's face it, is not known for diversity, this felt like a major win. Shout out to my QVC wife, Ophelia Dennis. At QVC, the learning curve was steep. It was my first experience with live TV, using an earpiece to hear instructions from the gallery, interacting with guest presenters and delivering calls to action to camera, not forgetting all the sales targets that needed to be hit. It was very much overwhelming at first, but it did get easier. Selling certain products within fashion and beauty was a lot more in my comfort zone and super fun. But DIY, home goods and other random knickknacks for the more mature audience just wasn't for me. And this is when I realised I wanted more. I started strategizing for where I wanted my career to go. I found a new agent and updated my showreel, adding in clips from QVC and focusing on me being a fashion presenter. I realised that although I'd worked within the fashion industry for 20 plus years, I had to become more credible in that world. So I decided to do a personal styling course. I've always thoroughly enjoyed styling myself and instinctively knew when something wasn't quite right with an outfit. And yes, I reveled in giving that look a couple tweaks to make it more pleasing to the eye. But I had no clue why I made these decisions and had never really styled other people. And that's what I found so satisfying about the personal styling course I did with the London College of Style. It gave me the knowledge to understand why certain looks and silhouettes looked better on certain frames. 
We learned about body types, how to identify style personality, how to conduct wardrobe edits and personal shopping experiences. I never thought I'd enjoy studying so much. As soon as I qualified, with distinction may I add, I gave my agent the go-ahead to send out my newly updated reel to her contacts and it was relatively quickly that I got a screen test for ITV's Lorraine show. This is exactly what I had envisioned and totally the way that I wanted my presenting career to go. The screen test itself was basically a simulation of a live segment on Lorraine, but it was recorded so that the bosses could watch it back and decide my fate. I had to talk through some retro print outfits that they'd just used in the show that went live. I had the models, the Lorraine set, which is much smaller than it looks on TV, by the way, but I didn't have Lorraine herself. I believe it was the fashion producer who stepped in. It went really well. I blinked and two days later, they were offering me an actual fashion segment. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this because it's rather fresh as I'm speaking into this microphone. But let's just say that I couldn't do QVC and the Lorraine segments. So I had to make a choice. And of course, how could I say no to Lorraine? It just wasn't going to happen. So that's how my time at QVC came to an end. And trust me when I say it was much more dramatic than I've just made it sound. So for me, one of my first bits of advice about becoming a presenter is to follow your gut. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Leaving the stability of a regular presenting job at QVC to see what happens with an as and when fashion segment would be pretty daunting to most people. But my gut told me it was right for me. And thus far, I'm pretty impressed with my decision. Okay, so let me give you some tips and suggestions on what steps to follow if you're trying to become a presenter. Number one, work out what kind of presenter you want to be. What platform do you want to speak from? Is it TV, radio, live events, not forgetting online? What do you want to talk about? In my case, it was fashion, but it could be sports, cooking, entertainment, music, the list goes on and on. But I do believe that narrowing it down is helpful to focus your aspirations, even if you do have to venture outside your desired topic in order to get experience at first. Which leads me to number two. When it comes to getting experience, you're going to have to get creative and somewhat pushy. Fake it till you make it definitely comes to mind. In my early days, there were so many live events that I wasn't actually sure if I could host, but I was up for putting myself out there and giving it a try. I still believe that hosting live events has prepared me for the career I have today. So if I was just starting out, I would reach out to organisations putting on events. I used to Google what events were going on at Excel and Olympia, find the organiser details, which are usually listed on the page, and then email them directly, offering them my services. Yes, at first for free, but eventually for money. I did not mean to rhyme. Number three, build your showreel from any live events that you can get into. Even just getting your friend film you talking to camera while you're standing in the foyer of that concert you're about to go into. Of course, that's just an example. Film in the street, walk and talk, add that into your reel. Aim for the best quality you can, but you do have to start somewhere. My first reels, looking back on them now, shocking. But I needed them to get here. Also remember that showreels should be recorded in landscape and then I'd advise to upload them to YouTube. But while you're doing all of this, number four is to create your own audience. Find your tribe. 
Social media is so important. I always say that if somebody looks on your page, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, etc., they should be able to see what it is you do and where your aspirations lie. Try and engage. Create the type of content that your favorite organizations would want to use. And number five, lastly, it's a persistence game. Keep on going. So this episode's fashion flashback is about an added detail in a garment, which takes it from like to love. You know that feeling, you're trying on that dress in the changing room, and to your amazement, there's pockets. Such a small detail which makes such a difference. But did you know that just by having pockets, women could be identified as a witch? Yes. Pockets were first constructed in the 17th century. However, this was only in men's garments. Women instead carried small pouches on a string which tied around their waist and was often hidden under layers and layers of petticoat. Definitely not easy access. Anyway, women with such pockets were soon accused of witchcraft. Accused of using their pockets to carry spells and curses to cause mayhem amongst unsuspecting citizens. Absolutely ludicrous. Like, the only reason a woman would need a pocket is to carry spells. I feel like if you're a decent witch, you'd probably memorise them. Women who were alleged offenders were burnt at the stake, so of course most women opted for rejecting these petticoat pockets, instead having their husbands carry around their personal items for them. That is not the solution. Men's pockets became more and more practical, sewn into jackets and trousers like they are today. And as female fashion became more figure-hugging, any type of pocket was just phased out altogether. This, of course, made way for the handbag, although they were very tiny at first, rather like the micro-bags of today. But eventually, they got more efficient in size. But we couldn't let pockets go. Instruction manuals on how to sew pockets into your skirts became popular as women increasingly sought independence. There was a movement to make women's clothing more functional, led by the Rational Dress Society in the 1800s. The suffragettes, of course, got involved, and in 1910, they designed the suffragette suit, which had a minimum of six pockets. While this was happening, men's garments continued to have more and more pockets designed into them. Men in the 1940s were wearing suits that had an average of two dozen pockets. Now let's talk about the size of pockets. Specifically, that men's pockets have always been much larger than women's. A study in 2018, which analysed 80 jeans from 20 major fashion brands, including Calvin Klein, H&M, Levi's, Wrangler and Ralph Lauren, found that women's jeans pockets were designed to be smaller than men's. On average, the pockets in women's jeans are 48% shorter and 6.5% narrower than men's pockets. Let's put that in perspective. Only 40% of women's front pockets can completely fit an iPhone X, and only 20% could fit a Samsung Galaxy. While every single pair of men's jeans studied could fit an iPhone X, and 95% could comfortably hold a Samsung Galaxy. That is a big difference. Our hands can't even fit in our pockets, with just 10% of women's jeans studied fitting a female hand inside, rendering them entirely impractical and purely just for aesthetics. Don't even get me started about faux pockets. I don't know what the point is. Anyway, did I mention that not surprisingly, every single pair of men's jeans could fit a male or female hand in the pocket? In the grand scheme of things, this might look like a small issue, but it really does come down to sexism and gender inequality. 
The London Spectator reported that it was a common thought that women had four external bulges already, two breasts and two hips, and a money pocket inside their dress would make an ungainly fifth. It's wild to think that clothing today is still being affected by these deep-rooted ideologies. And of course now it's perfectly okay for women to carry a handbag, a bum bag or whatever. But if we take it back to points in history where women were very much oppressed, the importance of being able to keep your personal belongings safe and hidden while maintaining mobility of both hands was fundamentally important when navigating public spaces. Restricting women from having functioning pockets is like restricting their freedom. The current continued lack of pockets in women's clothing can also be blamed on fast fashion. As pockets are an added detail that have to be designed and factored into the shape and structure of a garment, fast fashion brands who churn out thousands of designs a month don't have the time or patience to add them in. The emphasis for them is making as many pieces as possible as opposed to how they fit, feel or function. We as women most definitely need to continue to make a stand and push for equality in all areas. However, until denim brands decide to combat the gender pocket gap, those of us with pocket storage fantasies are probably better off finding alternative solutions, like bum bags or buying men's jeans. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Oh My Days, What Are We Wearing? This was actually a really personal sharing experience for me, almost like therapy, It made me see and acknowledge how far I've actually come. So I really hope it helped inspire you and gave you some tips on how to go about launching your own presenting career. Remember, my DMs are always open. Now, I'm super excited for the next episode where I dive into the crux of why I think fashion is so much more than just clothing. So please do tune in for that. Subscribe to this podcast and share the love. See you next time.